0: Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years, in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced since 2018, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic And today I have another wonderful guest on the podcast, and his name is Ryan Bush. And today we're going to talk a little bit about his journey, his neurodiverse relationship, and some of the work that he's done that I find pretty darn interesting and exciting. So Ryan, welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mona. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I would love if you would share with the listeners a little bit about what brought you kind of to do the work that you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, a few few different things have sort of converged to, to bring me to this point. I think, for one, you know, from a pretty early age, I've been fascinated by the human mind, by my own mind, and kind of studying and, uh, and working to change my own mental patterns. From an early age, I was very interested in, um, you know, changing my emotions, uh, altering habits and beliefs and biases and that kind of thing. And uh, paying much more attention to that kind of thing than I was to the uh, actual world around me most of the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there, there was that interest that sort of merged into an interest in psychology and philosophy when I realized there were other people thinking about these things and uh, some of them had beaten me to it by a couple thousand years um, uh-huh. uh, so I, I have had this passion for um, the mind and, and how we can live better lives since I was a teenager basically and uh, you know in school I studied product design and sort of built out this whole creative space and then at a certain point in my career it just made sense to sort of merge these interests together and, and look at how design merges with the mind, hence, uh, you know, the name of my book and business, Designing the Mind. And so looking at what I call psychotecture, which is the process of designing, modifying, changing your own mental patterns and habits. And so that's led me to write a couple of books and uh, products and programs and a, a kind of an online community platform as well.
0: I love it, Ryan. And I love the term that you came up with psychotecture, right? So I'd love if we could talk maybe a little bit about that. And there are some principles for psychotecture, right? And why you chose that word. So can you share a little bit with the audience about why that word and what it all means?
1: Yeah. So the idea is that really there's a a lot of um, a lot of self help that's sort of you know vaguely inspirational and filled with uh, fluff and and uh, I always felt like there was a need for a much more uh, sort of systematic approach to what you might call self improvement and and I have sort of come into that by taking a almost engineering software approach to the mind to our mental struggles. Um, in my first book, Designing the Mind: the Principles of Psychitecture, I lay out how our mental patterns can be compared to uh, software and algorithms, and that our beliefs and our emotions and our behaviors very often chain together and form complex feedback loops and we can learn the leverage points for actually creating major changes in our mental patterns. Um, for example, you know, changing our, Beliefs in order to ch- change our emotions and our, you know, moods, um, you know, changing those desires in order to change our behavioral habits and, and temptations and uh, dependencies and that kind of thing. So uh, really, it's it's all about looking at these micro mental habits that we can go in and and modify and, and build a mind that works uh, with us more than against us.
0: And you know what, Ryan, thank you so much for that. And I know, you know, your book is going to be fascinating to a lot of folks. I think that it's important for us to share with folks that um, you are neurodivergent yourself. And for those folks that are neurodivergent and just heard your explanation of or your definition of psychotexture, they're like, oh my gosh, she's part of my tribe. Because. Yes, because right it just it just will make sense to so many of the listeners so let's talk a little bit about your journey to self-identify as autistic kind of what took you there and um, and then we'll talk a little bit about your relationship with your partner
1: yeah so it's been uh, always clear to me pretty much since I was you know 12 years old that I was uh, different socially and that uh, you know, when I went into real school for the first time, I had been homeschooled until seventh grade, roughly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I got there and felt like I had landed on an alien planet. Essentially, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of, of all the years to stop being homeschooled, by the way, seventh grade is probably the worst one. <laughs> but
0: right, right. Um,
1: you know, it, it wasn't so much that it was uh, brutal. I didn't deal with a lot of bullying, luckily. But I did just generally feel alienated and, and kind of like an outsider for uh, that, that first year. And, and to some extent, every, you know, the, the remaining years of high school. So, um, you know, I, I think at some point I realized I wasn't really proud of the person I was. I felt like I was scared and sort of overcome by social anxiety. And I wasn't, you know, that whole first year, I pretty much didn't speak. I had like one word answers mm-hmm. to everyone I knew. And, um, you know, in my mind at the time, because I didn't start grappling with the autism thing until just a couple years ago now, um, you know, at the time I just needed to work really hard uh, to become a socially kind of normal person. And so what what I decided to do is kind of an seemingly odd choice, but I joined the football team, which, you know, for a like hundred pound chess team type kid, it was kind of an odd fit. Uh, but I, I stuck with it, not only for that year, but then for the next four years after it. Um, well, and Good for uh, you.
0: Yeah, good for you.
1: It was the scariest thing I could think to do. It was the most mm-hmm. out of my comfort zone I could do. And, and I don't really know how I recognized this at the time. Uh, that, that was what was needed. But I just recognized I wasn't really the person I wanted to be. I didn't really um, align with my own values that much. And so I felt like something drastic was needed. And in many ways, I think it did have that effect of really expanding my comfort zone, uh, helping me develop my social skills and, and you know make some lifelong friends in some cases. And it also gave me a reference for like what's really scary and intimidating. Now, if I go into a presentation or something that I'm nervous about, I can just say, oh, this is not as bad as, you know, game night on the football team. So I can, sure. I can handle this. Um, <laughs> and so I gradually sort of built out my social skills, started almost getting addicted to this whole, you know, doing things that scare me, started volunteering for presentations and starting conversations with people I didn't really know. And uh, these are all very against my nature, but I think I recognized that it was needed. And um, it really wasn't until I was writing, that first book, uh, Designing the Mind, that I started contemplating uh, my own neurodivergence, di- di- really. I had taken mm. a few like quizzes at some points, and they had always told me that I came out neurotypical. Um, a lot of those online quizzes are very superficial in the way they look at these things. And so I had just always concluded, okay, I just need to work really hard to be normal socially. Um, mm. But I, I actually had a, an experience where I had kind of... Um, you know, I went part time to write this book, essentially, at, at the job that I had in product design. I was only working two days a week. I was kind of feeling, uh, you know, more alienated from the team than uh, kind of the, the normal alienation that I'm comfortable with. And, sure. um, and, and I had one coworker in particular who, it, who was just kind of uh, just took an immediate dislike to me and seemed like she was trying to sabotage me at every point. And at, at one point, I sort of asked her to join me at a brewery because I felt like I I wanted to, um, you know, there was something that needed to be resolved between us. And I thought that would help things. Usually in the past, if I've had conflicts, that has been helpful. But, um, you know, she basically like spent that whole co- uh, that whole conversation, like trashing my book project, telling me that I'm like, I shouldn't be writing a book like this and and, uh, and at one point she diagnosed me essentially with autism, un- unsolicited, yeah. um, put that out there. And uh, yeah, the, the worst part of it was that she was right essentially about that. I ended up doing a lot more research over the next few weeks, months after that, and uh, increasingly found, okay, yeah, this is lining up. When I really started listening to firsthand accounts of what it feels like being autistic and uh, some of the social difficulties, but also some of the, you know, arguably some of the advantages, some of the, the thinking, uh, the ways of thinking that can uh, often be characteristic of autism, I started increasingly saying, okay, this is lining up perfectly with my life experience. And, and eventually I kind of accepted that term and, and gradually went from it being this disorder that I wasn't, you know, happy to have to something that I can now say I'm kind of, proud of and no longer see it as a a disorder or a disease, but just a a difference, essentially.
0: I love that. And I know you are pretty young. If I remember, you're in your 20s, Ryan, is that correct?
1: I'm 30 now. Okay, you're
0: 30. Okay. Yeah. And you're in a generation where I think, and especially on TikTok and, and social media, YouTube, where folks are sharing so many of the differences that are positive, and there's so much strength-based information out there and positive information. I wish the same was the case in my generation, because I'm actually twice your age. I'm turning 60. And there's so much negativity oftentimes attached to folks that find out or discover that they're autistic or AD. And also, there's a lot of grief, you know, I mean, you knew you knew when you were um, starting seventh grade after homeschooling, after being homeschooled, that you were different. And, you know, thank goodness for you, you weren't bullied, but you knew that there were things that other people were doing that maybe were not comfortable for you. And, you know, I got to commend you for for continuously pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And finding ways to grow because really that's what you're talking about. That from a very young age, you've had a growth mindset and not wanting to be limited by something that didn't fit into your comfort zone. I know that's not going to feel good for everybody, but I know we all have opportunities to grow, whether it's on our own or in relationships at work or with intimate partners or family or friends. So thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's going to be very interesting and enlightening to a lot of folks. So you identified as autistic in 2020. That's when you kind of had this epiphany. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and for those who know the, uh, the timeline, that's not a great time to be having a crisis in general. Um, yeah. Thank you, know, you COVID.
0: <laughs> Thank you, COVID. Right, Ryan? I, yeah. I, I will tell you that a lot of the couples that come to my support group and individuals that come to my support group, they say, we discovered that uh, my partner was autistic during COVID because people were spending so much time doing things that they normally didn't do and with their partners or family. So I don't know if that was the case with you, but if you want to share anything about that, I'd, I'd be very open to hearing.
1: Yeah, well, it, it really, um, I, I think it was actually the first couple weeks of of 2020 that I was sort of grappling with all this. And so really what the effect that it had was, was not so much that uh, COVID made me realize I was autistic as it was that um, COVID was just kind of the cherry on top of everything else <laughs> I was dealing with. So, you know, I... I I sort of had a a self-esteem struggle and, and a kind of a period of mild to moderate depression over the course of that year because I was questioning my own virtues of, you know, kind of likability and also some competence at my job and my, you know, new career that I was building with my book hadn't really kicked off yet. And so there was a lot of identity struggle going on. And when you are you know, struggling with your identity and self-esteem, it's not great to be cut off from all the other, uh, you know, avenues to bring out your personal strengths. I mean, all of my social communities and activities, they, they were all sort of shut down for that year. Um, sure. So it, it's hard to, um, you know, what I what I argue in my new book is essentially that, um, you know, the, the well-being scale that goes down to depression and, and all the way up to what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia or this peak you know, happiness it's, it's basically moderated by your view of yourself and your own virtues, right? And so um, whether you perceive yourself to be demonstrating these unique strengths on a regular basis or not is what's going to largely determine your well-being in this spectrum. And so, um, yeah, not being able to see a whole lot of evidence in the in the noise of everything that was going on in that year for my own personal virtues, I think is really what cast my self-esteem into a challenging period there. Um, and luckily, only really for that year, once I kind of made the shift to my new uh, new line of work in the sort of publishing and, and uh, you know, psychological space, I've been really better than ever on this front. But um, yeah, it, it was a difficult year for, for quite a few reasons.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know, you know, it's not always easy to share that you've had challenges with mental health. I know I've shared on the podcast um, frequently that during my separation, I was dealing with depression and went on Cymbalta and I went on it for four and a half years. It's also an anti-anxiety medication. And I know what you said is, is probably going to resonate with a lot of folks when we've been criticized Or not appreciated for the things that are part of our character traits, are part of our personality, are part of what makes us unique. Mm -hmm. You know, we start to doubt ourselves. And I am so glad to hear that during that year, you took the time to focus on what brought you peace or what brought you happiness or what brought you joy and what your strengths were so that you could get through the depression and the anxiety that you were feeling and to find your niche ryan Mm -hmm. you know there's so many people that are my age that feel that they've never really lived their purpose and it's really really sad you know they followed a path that society expected them to follow not where their heart wanted to take them and it sounds like you have followed your heart would that be am i reading that correct
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Essentially, what I've done with designing the mind is find a vessel that brings together all of my top like 10 personal strengths in one place and really mitigates my weaknesses or kind of makes them irrelevant in many ways. You know, I, I uh, have, have never thrived in like a social workplace environment in particular that's always been very confusing to my brain that I'm supposed to be getting work done and socializing at the same time. It's like those sure. are two different activities that use different parts of my brain. Um, and so now, you know, I, I work for myself. I minimize meeting time and, and maximize sort of deep work and focus that I'm really uh, pretty good at. Uh, it's deeply creative, which has always been a big thing for me, but it combines that with my analytical thinking skills and um, a lot more, too. I mean, it's it's really um, it it takes a lot of years, I think, of introspection and inquiring into your strengths to even be able to conceive of a way to bring them all together in this kind of way. But um, I'm really, uh, you know, and, and really it was 2018 when I was first, you know, envisioning this and, and putting together the foundation for it. But it took a couple years to get the book written and and uh, get everything kind of put in place. And so I did, I have been sort of on a continuous quest to find that way to bring those strengths together and, and build something like a a purpose or a, you know, passion that I can dedicate my whole work to.
0: And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. And for folks that want to get a copy of your book, Designing the Mind, it's available where? Uh, it's available
1: everywhere. It came out in 2021, and it's on okay. uh, my website, designingthemind.org. Uh, we've got some special editions there, but you can also get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. Wonderful. And Wonderful. It's been translated into a couple dozen languages now, which is cool, too. So it's in different uh... countries.
0: That's so awesome. Well, I, this year I have now discovered that we have people listening from 74 countries. So that'll be nice. Yeah. For folks that might speak another language and want to read your book. So let's talk a little bit about your relationship, because I know you are in a neurodiverse relationship, but you're both neurodivergent. And so I'd love to hear, and, and this was something that I didn't discover until after my separation. I identify as ADHD. So my ex and I were definitely neuro both neurodivergent but in very different ways. So tell me a little bit about when you both discovered, you know, that you had differently wired brains and how that works for you and how you kind of complement each other and then we'll talk about the challenges.
1: Yeah, so it was pretty shortly after my Sort of self-diagnosis that she was looking into ADHD and and realizing that she probably fell into that category. I think really it was it was TikTok essentially uh, <laughs> looking at people talking about things and and kind of the same as same as me seeing that that so much of what they were saying resonated with her experience and she had so many of these same struggles that um, she didn't she couldn't explain before. I think there are a lot of stereotypes that prevent people from making these realizations you know the stereotypical autistic person the stereotypical adhd person they aren't necessarily always that representative of the actual struggles and so um, when she started actually hearing people talk about what it's like it sort of clicked for her that she was uh adhd and and um explained a lot of her difficulties and and she had she had hidden it from me pretty well overall. Um, I mean, I I didn't know the extent at that point to which she struggled with a lot of this stuff. I knew she couldn't keep track of her phone and struggled keeping her, you know, house organized and stuff. But I really, um, you know, didn't know how hard she had been pushing her whole life to be able to have a normal uh, career and kind of a uh, normal life past her struggles with, you know, executive function and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and those challenges are real for those of us that are neurodivergent and you know nobody wants to share openly or I shouldn't say nobody, a lot of people don't want to share openly the challenges that they're having, although I'm doing it every week on the podcast <laughs> and so are my guests and and that helps to normalize the fact that we all have challenges. We all have different brains. And so if we're looking at those differences as negatives and not focusing on how we can understand each other, that's where we have the continuous challenges and arguments and conflicts and all those things. So let's talk a little bit about your communication differences. Are there some in particular that maybe challenged you and that you've worked through so that you communicate a little bit better?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge, and and I don't know if this quite falls into a communication uh, difficulty, but it's mainly the fact that I can be very, um, you know, some would say obsessive about my interests and my work. And that can make me distracted when I should be focused on her. And we, you know, we're trying to have a good time. It, it's kind of always going in the back of my mind. And so that can make me disconnected from the present sometimes. And then, um, you know, a lot of her struggles center around, yeah, just general organization of her life. And that affects me, you know, right now, um, she's, she's borrowing my car because, you know, hers has, uh, messed up and, and, uh, you know, she'll (laughs) she'll frequently be, you know, losing her keys or, um, Whatever, exact, whatever it is. But um, in terms of communication, in large part, uh, we're, we're really um, really compatible in that front. I mean, I, I think a lot of the people I've dated in the past have been pretty neurotypical, and, and that's where the real communication challenges have come up. Um, largely, we're on the same page about most things, and, and uh, I think that's, that's resulted in, in a really healthy, compatible relationship overall.
0: That's wonderful because I know for me, I would repeatedly, repeatedly, um, talk about a lot of things at once with my ex when you know he might be overwhelmed and I didn't see it and I would keep going and going and going sometimes for hours. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be a challenge in a lot of neurodiverse relationships when we don't understand that our partners may have like a communication battery that's on dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) or close to it. And we still keep going and going and going. I'm hyperverbal which is why I think I love hosting a podcast, because I can talk to so many wonderful people on a lot of different topics. So I think it sounds like you two have figured out the communication piece, which isn't the case with a lot of couples. But what about the emotional differences? Are there any challenges in that area or things that you've worked through that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, well, I, I will say on the communication side, too, that I think we're, we're pretty lucky in that I have had a number of close friends who uh, did have ADHD and, you know, were diagnosed from an early age. And communication has definitely been a struggle there. I have, you know, at times been very quiet and reserved and, and it doesn't make sense to them. And then they have, um, you know, talked about seven different things at once and, uh, you know, not even given time for me to you know, give an answer before they're on to the next thing. And so right. I think um I don't know if it speaks to just her overcoming some of her difficulties over the years and getting to a point where um you know we can communicate very well or if that's just not something she's struggled with in particular. But um you know I think we're we're very fortunate that it works that well there. That's um, great. Yeah, emotionally we're we're mostly on the same page too, I think. I mean, um, you know, I I Tend to be very rational, analytical. I know there there are times when um, <laughs> I'll tell one one story. We um, uh, I was I, we were in her house that she had bought just just a couple days ago. We're basically like celebrating uh, her new home, and I was trying to start a fire in this wood burning stove, and uh, I was struggling to get it started. And so I put a candle inside this stove. Um, <laughs> kind of like a big just wax candle and and put it under a log and said, okay, this flame will like get it started. I shut it. And um, after a few minutes, the fire was just going out of control. There was like a flame spiral in this wood burning stove. Mm -hmm. And, um, (laughs) you know, essentially the it had gotten so hot in there that the like petroleum based candle had itself caught on fire. And so um, even putting water on it wasn't helping. And it was saying the temperature was off the charts. So, um, you know, I ended up, you know, she was freaking out. She thinks anything, she thinks everything is on the verge of exploding at every moment. And so, um, she was freaking out. I was saying, you know, it's fine. It's nothing to worry about. And she was like, no, it's it's going to explode. You got to call call the fire department. So, I did end up calling the fire department. And, and um, you know, I was I was, I was already, I, I sort of am too quick to jump into the like rational, here's why this is okay kind of thing, instead right. of accommodating the emotions that other people are having at the time. And so I think occasionally that does become a challenge. Um, as far as how that story ends, we did end up calling the fire department um, and going outside and waiting for them. I told them that it was contained within a wood burning stove completely. And so it's really nothing to worry much about it's just precautionary but they ended up bringing this whole truck they got stuck halfway up the mountain to her house a bunch of guys hiked up with you know full gear and they went in and there was just a nice fire that had now gone down to optimal temperature Uh, so they kind of made fun of us and uh, and we had a good laugh about it but yeah that's just a, a general example of how sometimes i'm i'm overly analytic but um but overall that that kind of rarely rarely affects our everyday life and mostly we're on the same page
0: that's wonderful i mean i love that story and i i saw this in my marriage it was always so interesting that my ex could handle emergency situations beautifully if there was a major crisis like we got into a car accident we had moved across country and we got into a car accident like our first month there And we only had one car and somebody had ran, run a red light and he was calm as a cucumber. And I was like freaking out. I had broken my pinky, not a big deal. Right. Mm. But, and we were okay. The car wasn't, but we were okay. And that was what happened throughout our marriage. He was great in emergency situations, but he could not handle my day to day emotion, as well as i would have liked Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: you know i i think that's a challenge that couples have to deal with either on their own or bring in a third party you know a coach or a therapist because sometimes it can be a big difference for neurodiverse couples that can and it can create you know challenges or conflict so good for you and so, I'm so sorry for the firemen having to tra- <laughs> track up the mountain for a fire that really wasn't a, a fire they had to put out. But that's a yeah. great story. So thanks for sharing that. So how about the sensory differences? Um, we talked when we were preparing for the podcast about a little bit about sensory overload. So you want to talk a little bit about how that may impact you or your relationship with your partner?
1: Yeah, my my biggest sensory thing, I don't struggle much with, you know, the bright lights or um, noise. I mean, uh, I don't love it, but (laughs) I've I I think to some extent it it goes back to my teenage years getting out of my comfort zone. I've just kind of gotten to a point where I'm comfortable with a lot of the things that go on in the world. I don't know. Um, But that's
0: awesome. That's awesome.
1: But what I do, you know, what does get me overwhelmed is crowds of people and, and a lot of social activity. I get very easily drained socially. My battery is not high and, and she's much better with that. She can uh, socialize much more, um, much longer and much, you know, generally better than I can. And um, but but we both get burned out uh, on socializing and we both need time away from it all. So. It works pretty well. But in general, um, the, it, it's very good to have someone who is more of a social butterfly than I am, who can kind of uh, pick up the slack when we go to parties as couples and I don't have to talk as much. And right. um, so in general, it's good. But, you know, we both um, we both can get overwhelmed in social situations um, too much, too many crowds. We, we both need some quiet time. So that's uh, that's pretty, pretty good.
0: That's, that's awesome. And that you can communicate with each other, you know, openly and be vulnerable regarding what you need and what you want. And it sounds like to me that you show each other a lot of respect. What do you think the other things are that are positives and strengths and ways in which you appreciate each other? so that you have this balance and understanding and acceptance of your differently wired brains? What are some of the other positive things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I remember coming across a study that, where they studied couples and what they prioritize most uh, in a relationship. And then they, they checked back with them after a certain number of years to see how they were doing as a couple. And the couples who had said that communication was the most important thing uh, were less likely to still be together years later, and, and those who had said respect was the number one most important thing were much more likely to stay together. And I've always felt like that's uh, there's a lot of truth in that. I think self control is actually one of the most important traits you can have in a relationship um, because there there are going to be times when you get on each other's nerves and uh, you want to say things that you don't mean or that you're going to regret, and you. You need to be good about um, not doing that, and so I think we have really prioritized respect in our relationship, and we're good about um, you know not uh, not disrespecting each other even when we're you know frustrated at times or anything, and and I think that's uh, that's the the right way to be with these kind of things. Um, but I also think that one of the ways we complement each other well is that you know I I've said I can be very obsessive about my work, and I very often will kind of neglect my own needs. I mean, (laughs) if you uh, knew some of the things she makes fun of me for, I just, uh, you know, I really don't uh, prioritize making like a comfortable environment for myself. I I will just forget about eating, forget about sleep, forget about my Mm -hmm. emotional needs uh, when I'm, you know, consumed in my work. And she provides me with a healthy dose of uh, goofy playfulness and uh, kind of kind of forces me to pay attention to myself and, and my emotions and things like that. And so, you know, always in my um, in my books and my acknowledgments, I'm always mentioning how I, I couldn't get through these, you know, in many ways, intense, exhausting, like writing projects without her comic relief and just general support that she brings. And so, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's another important thing that I yeah I, I need to have in a relationship.
0: Mm, I love that. I wish more of us in neurodiverse relationships for a long time would have gotten that bit of advice to use humor and to make time for fun. Because I think a lot of neurodiverse couples who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, who didn't know they were a neurodiverse couple, focused on the differences and the challenges, and fun and humor like went out the door. Mm. And that's not healthy at all. And friendship, you know, I love that you talked about respect and self control. I mean, You know, with most of our friends, we wouldn't scream at them and call them names when we get upset with them. Yet many of us do that in our relationships and some, or we wouldn't necessarily do that with a child or a parent, but we do that with the people that we love the most and are in, you know, long-term or intimate relationships with, and it's not okay. It's not healthy. So I think those are really, really important things for the listeners to think about if they're doing In their relationship, the positives, and I know um, you know your your new book is coming out in I think you said February of twenty twenty four, so let's talk a little bit about the book, becoming who you are, and what folks can expect when they either pre order the book and get it in February or they order it you know after it comes out. What is your focus for that book?
1: Yeah, so it's become who you are. And it is, um, it's really a book that in many ways ties together a lot of these experiences and reflections that I had during that difficult year. Um, Really, I mean, I had been studying all these different psychological factors, self-esteem and depression and well-being for, you know, a decade or more. But it kind of took living it and, and actually having that experience of going through an episode of depression and, and low self-esteem for me to be able to connect the dots and piece all these things together. And so I am, you know, sort of alternating between sharing my lived experience in this book and uh, using it to bring to life a theory that I'm fleshing out on well-being and, um, and even about neurodivergence itself. in and, and one of the chapters, I kind of go down that rabbit hole and, and explain how these different neurotypes fit into this overall theory. Um, but I'm, I am, in many ways, trying to provide a comprehensive understanding of this well-being system in our brains, right? What actually causes us to get depressed or to feel really good about ourselves? Um, and why is it there from an evolutionary perspective?
0: I love that. And I know you've studied the Stoics, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) there's so much that we can learn from the Stoics. I know I used to call my ex-husband Stoic. And then when I actually started reading some of the Stoics work, I realized that, you know, that isn't a negative thing (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know um oftentimes we think it is but stoicism has added so much to my life because i realized that the stoics really wanted to get the most out of their lives out of their lives and teach people how to appreciate each day and to find their purpose so are there some things that you've learned from the stoics that you would like to share with listeners
1: yes so all of those greek schools have like modern terms today that have sort of misconstrued the the whole point i mean epicurean is very different from epicureanism yeah stoicism is seen as this kind of out of touch with their emotions like suppressing and uh and really you know ancient stoicism was a very i think healthy approach to your emotions and uh learning to sort of help them to work with you and so in my first book i draw from the stoics primarily Uh, to explain how we can work to domesticate our emotions, how we can work to not worry about the things that we can't control, because there's no point in doing that, how to regulate our desires uh, when they are causing us to suffer. Um, But in this book, I focus on uh, really what is the, I think, central tenet of Stoicism that's often neglected in modern Stoic teachings. Uh, And it really comes down to this word virtue. It it sounds like this preachy, sort of uh, outdated term to us today, but originally arete is the word, and and it's often translated to excellence. And so this can refer to any strength, anything that we tend to admire, whether that's courage or compassion or creativity. Um, And so virtue, they argued, was really what was responsible for well-being. If you wanted to be deeply happy and satisfied in your life, it was about maximizing virtue and living according to these principles. Um, and I suspect that there's actually a lot of modern evidence that backs this up, from evolutionary psychology to uh, you know, clinical psychology to neuroscience. Uh, I think there's actually a system in our brains that is regulating our moods according to what we observe in our own behaviors. Uh, we're looking for traits... That other people would admire us for, that we would admire someone else for. And based on whether we see those traits or not in our behaviors, uh, it's regulating our mood up or down. And so, um, you know, the Stoics, this, this core idea is, is really about uh, your circumstances, your well being. Uh, sorry, your, your circumstances are not what's responsible for your well being, right? Simple pleasure and pain, loss and gain. I compare these things to a kind of two-dimensional map that we're all navigating our lives according to by default. We're trying to maximize pleasure and you know, success and gain when really there is a hidden third dimension of virtue that's actually what's responsible for our well-being. And so at any given time, whether we are experiencing this gain and the success in our life or loss and suffering, right? What's really determining whether we're going to be deeply happy or depressed is how much we admire ourselves and how, uh, how well we're able to see those traits that we admire uh, coming out in our own behavior every day.
0: Mm. Oh, that's beautiful, Ryan. I love that. And I think, you know, the way that you, I love, first of all, the term that you came up with, psychotecture, because I think we all have the opportunity to create the blueprint for our life. We can be our own architect in our lives, but it's scary. There's a lot of people that are living in fear, fear of being rejected, fear of being not enough, fear of failure and i know that stops a lot of folks from being their authentic selves going after their dreams what have you and it's it's sad you know and we and now you know the the invention of social media has not made life easier for a lot of people right. yes we have access to a lot of information but we also have access to a lot of opportunities to compare ourselves to others and not measure up and it creates Like we talked about earlier, the depression, the anxiety, a lot of mental health challenges, and it also challenges our well-being because we are, we can be the best version of ourselves if we choose it, but we can't be the best version of somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think, where that struggle, you know, comes in. So I love that. I love that. Is there anything else that we've talked about a lot of things? It has been a fantastic discussion and conversation. Is there anything else that you want to talk about related to your books and the work that you're going to be doing, you know, moving forward that you want to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah, well, I'll just say first on that, on la- that last point, I uh, very much agree that there are a lot of forces that are taking a lot of people off of their personal path. I think the, the so- social media comparison thing is one of them. We, we start uh, trying to live a life according to what is you know, socially approvable, what society lifts up rather than what's really true to us. I think the anxiety and the fear is another one. You know, we we uh, have a lot of sort of cultural habits that instill anxiety and perpetuate anxiety that uh, takes us off of our course. But what I argue in this book is that we all have a kind of compass built into us, and we need to learn how to listen to it. Our own impulses of admiration that we feel when we look at other people in our lives that that we uh, you know admire something about. Right? These all add up to a kind of blueprint for how we should be living our own lives and how we can get closer to becoming that person that we admire. And I think this is going to be unique for every person. Everyone has their own unique set of strengths, their own unique set of values. And so really inquiring into these things. uh, You know, this is why I made a a deck of introspection cards called Mindsight, uh, because I think you know, we're, we're so distracted today. Most of us aren't asking the questions that I think we need to be asking about ourselves to really figure out who we are, uh, which will tell us where we need to go. I mean, that's the, that's the message of become who you are, is learn who you are in, in, the ter- in the sense of your virtues and values, and then bring it out in your actual behavior in your life. And so uh, that, that's the, the core message of become who you are. Um, I will I will kind of add too if we, um, if we have some time. Yeah. You know, one, one of the ways I sort of tie in the, the neurodivergence into this overall framework is I'm looking at these virtues and and I'm arguing that the reason we have these different virtues like creative intelligence and generosity uh, is because they allowed us to sort of contend within the social landscape. Uh, so it wasn't so much about, survival in, in the evolutionary sense, it was about social selection and mate selection and that kind of thing. And so you can look at certain species of animals. Uh, you can look at guppies. You can look at these uh, lizards where there are um, they're, they're essentially rare morphs of these species that have really rare colorations. And they are attractive to mates specifically because they are rare, even though they may come at a certain cost. Uh, we see these, these morphs preserved in a small percent of populations, um, you know, generally less than 5% of the population, and they are maintained at that percentage specifically because they remain rare at that percentage, and, and as a result, they are attractive and admirable. And so what I've argued is that potentially these neurotypes like autism and ADHD, uh, they are often regarded as you know, disorders or diseases, but I don't think that explains why they've been preserved in the gene pool so uh, well as they have. And so I've argued that they're sort of like these rare morphs that although they, con- they have certain costs uh, in some of the areas that are more normal to be strong at, they also come with advantages that are more rare. And that's specifically why they've been uh, preserved through all these generations, because there are rare traits uh, that come along with having a brain that works differently. And so I, have, I no longer view autism as a disorder. I think it's a rare advantage of sorts. It's a, a way of differentiating from a genetic standpoint and, and standing out in the social landscape for the genuine strengths that you have, even though you struggle with other things.
0: I love that, Ryan. That is going to resonate with so many folks that listen to the podcast and for couples that are struggling to understand each other, I think the more we can look at each other through a lens of love and compassion and grace for our differences, I hate the term disorder. I hate it. I think it it stigmatizes differences, and differences are oftentimes so beautiful if we understand them and it sounds like you've done a lot of research to understand all your own differences and you're helping others to understand their differences as strengths and things to be celebrated you know I embrace my emotions now but I'll tell you in my marriage um I didn't you know because my daughter and my ex-husband are both more um Controlled with their emotions. And I know I've got this picture in my head of the two of them looking at Mona screaming or crying and not knowing what to do. But now, you know, when we go on our own self discovery and growth journey and can understand that what other people may view as negative or differences that are challenging, we can embrace as things that are critically important part of our makeup. And who we are and you know it just it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about your self-discovery and the work that you're doing that's so in alignment with you know your love of these different areas of uh, research and your love of writing and your love of communicating and talking about uh, your journey and the those of others i just think that you are on a path is going to help so many people, Ryan, and I really appreciate that
1: a lot. Yeah, yeah I, I've really enjoyed the conversation too. And, and it's, uh, it's great that you have been able to find that understanding and, and work through a lot of those challenges with your um, you know, ex-husband and your daughter. So um, that's, uh, that's really great. And, and I agree. I think um, you know, my work, fortunately, has already reached and impacted a lot of people. And I'm hoping this new book will, uh, will take that even further. Yeah,
0: fantastic. And I love that you have a deck of introspection cards. That sounds awesome. So is there anything else you want to share with the audience before you give them your contact information for those folks that want to reach out to you? Any last words of wisdom or thoughts?
1: No, I think we uh we covered a lot of ground here. I will um I will share the link designing the mind org slash becoming is a great place to go to both because it'll give you the link to pre-order the new book but it'll also get you a couple of uh free books that i'll send your email um the psychotext toolkit and the book of self-mastery which is sort of a quote compilation and commentary uh and you'll also be able to see that you know any of the other products i mentioned on the on the website so um Wonderful. yeah yeah
0: Fantastic. Well, I wish you the best in 2024 with the new book and all the work that you'll be doing for the rest of your career. And I really appreciate the depth of this conversation and you sharing so openly about your own journey and your journey in your relationship and, you know, how you discovered your strengths and how you're using them every day now to not only help yourself move forward, but to help others. So thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mona. I I enjoyed it.